You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. And before we get into this episode, I want to take a brief moment to welcome our new listeners. I am so happy to have you join the 26er family. But if you've gotten into the show somewhere in the middle and did not start at the beginning, you might be wondering why the show is called the December 26er podcast. No, December 26th is not my birthday. I get that question all the time now. But the name has an entirely different significance. So if you would like to learn more about its origin and what it represents and why I refer to our family of listeners as 26ers, go ahead and check out episode one. I break it all down there. Okay, back to this episode. This one features a dynamic 26er, Tyrone Ross Jr., Tyrone is a financial consultant and a managing partner at Noble Bridge Wealth Management. Now, when we record these episodes, I always have a loose agenda in mind, but I also try to keep the conversation pretty organic. I kind of want to go wherever the guest goes. This time around, given Tyrone's area of expertise, I had every intention of dedicating a good amount of time to tactical information that listeners might find useful. I wanted to get into financial literacy, cryptocurrency, building a financial portfolio, etc. But Tyrone came to the podcast as an open book. He approached our conversation with a level of candor and vulnerability that, quite frankly, was unprecedented. So any summary that I try to give here will just not do it justice. I'll just say this. Make sure you listen to the entire thing. Stick with the episode until the end, because you might realize what I did. Tyrone put a spotlight on something that I think many of us struggle with, but don't have the words or the courage to articulate. So take a listen. And I really hope you take something from this one. Please enjoy. Tyrone. Good, good evening. Good evening to you. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am very, very good. I'm blessed to be here. Thank you for sharing your platform. We are blessed to have you. So as uh, our producer DeMarcus mentioned before we clicked record here, we were traveling in Europe. To those who haven't listened, check out that UK episode that we did. Went from UK to Paris and he was up just, you know, kind of surfing the internet and came over to me and was like, Tyrone Ross Jr. You got to check this guy out. We got to get him on the podcast. Appreciate and, uh, it. He sent you a message right away. And here we are. Yeah. Like, not even maybe a month later at yeah. this point. So just that's about exciting. Happy to have you. So no, tell us. Happy to be here. Who is Tyrone Ross Jr.? Tyrone Ross Jr. is a three time failed Olympian. And you want to leave that's it right it. there? You leave it right there. OK, so we're going to get into what happened after that three time fail Olympian chapter of your mm-hmm. life. But since you brought that up first. Yeah. We're going to talk about it. Mm hmm. So, first of all, I've heard people say I failed once and, you know, I moved on to another career, but you had it three times. You failed three times. This happened, right? I would probably, I would add two more to that. I would add five to that because I got kicked out of college twice. All right. So so let's take it all the way back. (laughs) Where did the Olympic dream come from? When did that start for you? So I was 16 years old um, watching the, I'm dating myself here. I was watching the 96 games and I watched Michael Johnson win the 400 and I'm like. Gold shoes, man. Yeah. And I'm like. (laughs) I want to do that. Um, And I didn't know what that entailed. I didn't know anything, but I was like, I want to do that. And I had started running track as a freshman in high school. So I was a junior at that time and was still trying to find my way in track and see if that was actually going to be something I was really good at. And then um, it just from that point on, it was it had been something that I woke up every morning and was like, that's what I want to do. And for the next 16 years of my life, that's what I chased. Okay, so from 16 all the way up to 32, we're chasing that medal. Mm -hmm. So college, did you get a scholarship for track? Yep, I got a I got a full scholarship to Georgia Tech that I promptly blew. Um, (laughs) I'd never been away from home. I mean, I graduated at 17 years old. I was the first one to finish high school. I didn't know anybody that went to college. So I I went from a little small school with 90 graduates in Metuchen, New 
Jersey wow. to Georgia Tech University in the smack dab in the middle of Atlanta and lost my mind. Yeah, so <laughs> promptly lost my mind. Atlanta is a lot uh, for a 17 year old. It's like the world is your oyster. Oh my Especially goodness. Especially for a brother. I mean, right. Let's just keep it all the way real. So I, and you're an athlete. Right? Yeah, that helps. So that helps a lot. That or helped. hurts. Yeah, it's true. What it hurt me. Right it hurt. Now. It helped and hurt. So you got out to Georgia Tech and your events were 400. 400. So 400, 400 hurdles, four by four. I ran the relay, um, some 200s here and there. But yeah, 400 was the gift and the curse. Got it. So did it all go to pot immediately? Oof. Yeah, just about. Okay. Um, when I actually, so they, <laughs> they, I never forget it. There was like an incoming freshman, like rooftop get together that I went to. And I remember getting up to the rooftop and I looked and I saw all these girls and I'm like, wow. <laughs> now, mine was an engineering school. It was mostly boys, but it was a lot of girls. There. And I'm like, I have nobody to answer to or whatever. But yeah, it, it went from that point on and, and it just went, I just didn't go to class. I didn't take it seriously. I just didn't go. Um, and at that time, I was very big into jewelry and clothes. That was the Nautica time. So I had all the Nautica stuff and I had the Cubans with the Jesus <laughs> piece. I, it was ridiculous. <laughs> so you I went out there with the Jersey swag, number one. 100%. And was Timberland, no, no. the whole deal. I used to get dressed. So there's a bus at Georgia Tech called the Stinger. I used to get dressed and sit in the back of the Stinger all day and just mad. You, you got to be kidding me. So wait. 100%. Wait, wait. We got to break this down. So you got to school on a track scholarship. Yeah. Georgia Tech. Yep. So did you have like scholarship money that was just disposable oh, income? Oh, you going to leave me down there. Yeah, yes, I was leaving I'm that leaving. out. So it turns out at the time I found a way, um, I guess this is the first part of me being entrepreneurial, that I could cash in my meal plan. So Georgia Tech was on quarters. So your meal plan was three grand. So I was like, so the, I just happened to, because the way it worked, right? If you own a full scholarship, you would go get all of your stuff. We would get vouchers to get our books, the whole deal. You don't pay for anything. So I went to the window where you actually go get your meal plan and either put on your card or whatever. So the woman said, do you want it on your card or you want a check? So I looked around and I was like, come, come here and sit a little closer. She's like, do you want it all in a check? She's like, you can take it so this way you can grocery shop. And I was like, give me the check. True story. I called my boy. So he had a, um, a truck at the time and a Zuzu, right? I said, take me to the bank, to, to the bank, posited the check. Got a thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills. I said, now let's go drive around campus. And I told him to put on at the time I've been around the world. <laughs> So I'm out the window of the truck. I've been around, been around. Yeah. Real true story. You when he hears it, when he me. when he hears this, he's gonna scream. But yeah, so I promptly took the money, bought clothes, more jewelry, watches, rings, you name it. I had it all and no groceries. I was about to say, just answer this one question for me. And I hope the answer is what I want to hear. <laughs> Tell me you didn't have women feeding you after you spent all your money on clothes I did. and jewelry. I did, I absolutely oh, did. I needed that, I needed the help. I needed to help. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to help. All right, I digress. Okay. So you, you blow the first year. Right? I did. Yeah, so I finished the first year with, I think, uh, a point nine GPA. I didn't even know that was possible. It, it, it was. And I, I know the coach called and he was like, and I love Coach Hinsdale to this day. Coach, if you're listening, I love you. He's like a second father to me, but he was like, you flag this, you flag this, you flag this. And it, I, yeah. But here's what I find interesting. Yeah. Like, were you not getting warnings or along the way from administration? Like, or your coach like, hey, uh, pull me a coattail? Yeah. So there was, there was, we had to have mandatory study hall okay. and and um, yeah, there, there was things that we had to do, but I was just like, I was missing them all. Okay. And then I would be the one to get the team punished. Like I was that guy okay. to make us do extra laps and stuff like that. But so for instance, another funny story. So we would have to log into study hall. So you would put in your code and you would study hall. So what I used to do is log in and leave, but I wouldn't log out. So we got track practice. The coach come down the stairs. He's like, you know, such and such. 20 hours of study hall, great job. Such and such. 14 hours of study hall, great job. Tyrone, 75 hours of study hall. Everybody go run. And they're like, man, I'm like, I told y'all to log me out. So I would go and see which young lady was in study hall and be like, let's get out of here. You know what I mean? I got money in my pocket. <laughs> let's go to Waffle House. <laughs> Waffle House is that deal, though. It absolutely I don't is. I care what their uh, I'm having my wedding at Waffle House. Is. Please don't Waffle say that. I'm having Waffle House wedding. <laughs> 
Just letting everybody know now. All right. So that's it. You're flagged on everything your first year. Yeah. And you come back to Jersey, I presume. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I uh, promptly got kicked out and I had to reapply. And only by the grace of God and the biology professor. So here's, here's the backstory. So I was a biomedical engineer major on top no, of you everything aren't. else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, you I wanted not. I wanted to be a gynecologist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is true this is story. Turned into like I'm, a BT blockbuster movie. I'm not making it this all up. started when I landed I on wanted, the campus yeah. of Georgia Tech. <laughs> I wanted to be a gynecologist. Whatever. It's funny now, like, 17-year-old boy wanted to be a gynecologist. Um, and ends up in Atlanta. Funny. So, yeah. So, the biology, the head of the biology department was a fan of me for whatever reason. And he helped me get um, accepted back into the school. And because uh, that last quarter, right? So, I said, of course, the last quarter I was out. Mm-hmm. Got back and they were like, listen, you got to make this work this quarter or you're gone. And I just, I didn't go. I mean, I, I, I went to more classes then because I was like, all right, I'm going into my sophomore year. I got sure. kicked out. I got to make this work. Yeah. And he promptly kicked my butt out again. Wow. Um, yeah. And I was out. That was it. OK. So kicked out twice from Georgia Kicked Tech. out twice. And then what happened? A um, lot of tears and crying. I called home and my mother knew because mm-hmm. she got a notice. And she was like, this is probably where I started to realize the importance of love. Sure. Right. And what what love meant to be unconditional. And my mother said come home and we're going to greet you the same way we left you. And she <laughs> she grabbed as many people as she could to meet me at Newark Airport when I got home and they cheered and hugged or whatever. And she also enrolled me herself in community college so I could get right back to classes. Wow. Um, She's like, you're not taking a break. So, yeah, I promptly went to the same community college that I used to laugh at because we lived literally right across the street. Still community college. You crazy. I was right there walking over there with my head down, taking classes Um, and got home. And there was messages from coaches all over the country. That knew that I that I got released, and Seton Hall coach was the Olympic coach that year, assistant wow. Olympic coach, and he sent me a postcard from the Olympics that I still have. And he said, "If you get your grades right, I got a scholarship for you." Wow! So I so I again the moral of the story, which is unbelievable, is I got two full scholarships, which was crazy. All right. Uh, so yeah. how long were you at community college? I was there a couple months, so I had to I had to finish my basically I had to get my associates there. Okay. So I was there long enough to get, I don't know, what is that, 30 credits, 45 mm-hmm. credits, something like that. Um, but I had to take a lot of classes because I didn't <laughs> I didn't have too many credits from Georgia right. Tech. So it was a few months because I know I started at Seton Hall that January, right? January 01, something like that. Yeah, of 01. Um, and yeah, it's finished there and then promptly walked on campus to Seton Hall and um started the next version of drama, which was, I, I thought I did everything to be eligible to run. Mm-hmm. Turns out I wasn't. So I lost my junior year. So that was stressful. I did all this work to get back, got my wow. grades right, turned the corner and I couldn't run. So that was devastating. Um, And then I had to go through that whole process. So I did, you know, I was like, at least I can, again, God knows all things, right? I was able to focus on my books. Sure. So I ended up graduating from Seton Hall with honors. I'm like, oh, I am kind of smart. I got a brain. And then that's what happened to make a way for graduate school. So yeah, that happened. And then, you know, finally got eligible for my senior year. Of course, my senior year, both my knees are acting up like I'm some old man for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Because you're had an, yeah, yeah, had an okay season, nothing that I'd planned. Um, and that was it. And then suddenly my track career was over. I'd run, I'd run my freshman year and I'd run my senior year. The three years in between I lost. Wow. So yeah, it was, it was terrible. So did you, I mean, did you ever get to a point where you've been in the Olympic trials, like, you know, so 2004, which was two years after I graduated, I graduated in 2002, 2004, when I first qualified for Olympic trials, I'm on my way to the airport, right? So I had, I had done the whole experience. I got my hair cut. I'm in the barbershop. They're wishing me luck, of family, course. the whole thing. Again, God works in mysterious ways. A, a guy who went to Seton Hall, who graduated before me was actually, so that the way they have it is a committee that takes a certain amount of uh, people into the events every year. So me and my coach look back, right? In 2000, 
thousand. I think they took thirty two um, in ninety six. I think they took I don't know thirty three something mm-hmm. like that. So I would at the time I was sitting like twenty seventh something like that. So like I'm good. I never forget where I was. And my mother's in the car and he calls and he goes, "Where are you?" I'm like, what do you mean where I am? I had a fresh cut. I'm on my way to right. the airport. I'm on my way out to the trials. He goes, "Don't get on the plane, bro." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He was like, "You and the twenty twenty eighth guy had the same time. They left y'all both out." Wow. And just ah. Uh, Thinking about it now, it's crazy. And I told my mother and she turned the car around and I cried. And for two weeks, I just went into a, my mother, to this day, my mother tell you she was worried about me. She didn't think I was going to come out of that. But the crazy thing is the guy who was, had the same time, I knew him mm-hmm. and he called me and he goes, I could promise you, I will never do this to myself again. He never stepped foot on the track since. Wow. He's like, I will never do this to myself again. He was like, I'm gutted, man. And I kind of felt the same way, but I kind of went through my grieving phase. And then the next thing you know, I was like, all right, well, in 2008, I'm going to make it, you know, Um, and that was it. And that was that was it was everything. So fast forward to 2008, 2008. um, Now, by this time, I've been working on Wall Street two years. Mm -hmm. Um, I told him when I interviewed, I said, look, I'm training for the Olympics. This is a deal. A couple couple months beforehand, they were all in. They said, look, take the couple months off. They, you know, sponsored me the whole deal. So, you know. I'm working full time. I'm training. Right. I'm getting up to go train 3.30 in the morning. Right. To be done by 4.30 to get on a five o'clock train to travel into the city to work all day, to get home at seven, to train again at nine. Right. To, I'm you know, thinking about this and my wheels are already turning. I, listen, I'm, I've am i never aspired to be an Olympian, but I, I did run, run track at one point. And I, but I watch the yeah. the Olympics, you know, every four years and, and I follow the stories mm. and people are in this training thing full time. They're not going to a job. Nope. That is their job. So I'm trying to picture you in wall on Wall Street. Yep. which is a beast unto itself, which we'll get into. <laughs> yeah. And then trying to train on top of that yeah. to compete with the best of the best mm-hmm. from around the globe. Were you sleeping at all? Uh, not really. <laughs> not really. At that time, I was just, I was driven by passion and desire mm-hmm. and commitment. And I'm by nature, I always describe myself as a dreamer. Mm-hmm. I had a dream, right? And God had put something in my heart that there was nothing that was going to stop me, mm-hmm. right? I was like, I don't care. Sleep, whatever. I gave up everything. I didn't have a social life. Mm-hmm. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. I was fully committed to that. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was it. And then, so I, they, they were like, listen, you're doing working crazy hours, doing this, take a couple months. And I was just exhausted. And I, when it came to the meets, I just couldn't compete well. Wow. And it left me a half a second off the, the qualifier. So I missed out on 08. And, and that is funny if for as bad as 2004 was 2012 was the worst, but 08 was so bad as well, but it was bookend by too awful experience that sure. it's just I'm numb to how you know I mean how bad it was as well and look at that point I was 28 and wow. I'm like all right well you peak as a runner somewhere between 25 to 28 25 to 29 sure. and I'm like I gotta I gotta figure this out right um I'd given up getting into any type of long-term relationship there's a few women out there who disagree because they were <laughs> they were in relationships and I wasn't but you didn't know you were in the relationship. <laughs> exactly so I didn't I didn't put anything into it. I let that go. But also I was also, I wasn't developing as a man. Sure. I saw myself as a runner. So I let, I was, I was an empty vessel and things started to evolve. And, you know, again, I'm like, all right, you're working on wall street. What more you want, right? Make this work. And I was like, I gotta give it one more shot. So I'm like, I'll be 32. Wow. Right. It's like, it doesn't happen at 32. And then, you know, 2010, late 2010, 2011, I got into a woman, into a relationship with a woman I thought I was going to marry. So she was doing the whole Miss America thing. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the Olympics thing. And I'm like, all right, well, this is it. You know, everything is kind of coming together. But yeah, so it just, it followed this trajectory. But as the years went on and the failures mounted, it started to reveal cracks. Okay. Right? And holes where I wasn't developing. You would think I would be developing, right? Because mm-hmm. of chasing a dream and doing all these other things. But I was developing the wrong type of characteristics that would make a man look long-term successful. And then that's when 2012 happened and it all came crashing down. So... When you say it all came crashing down, what happened? Um, I tried to kill myself. Really? Um, yeah. I So the year started off. So let's go to that November. So my girlfriend at the time, she was in New Jersey 
So she wanted to leave New Jersey to go to, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but mm -hmm. she left to go to D.C. Okay. to do Miss D.C. So that was an issue right there. So that was, that put stress on a relationship that already was, you know, fraying um, due to, again, my own issues. So that happens. That's November of 11, January of 2012, my grandmother dies. Mm -hmm. Starts the year off. My grandmother passed away two days before I'm about to open up my season, my mother's mother. Wow. So I do all this hard work. So I'm like, what do I do? So I'm, we're actually all in the house when my grandmother passed. So this bracelet, right, is the is the bracelet. I, I had two of them. The other one popped. I'm hoping this one is still hers. God knows. But um, yeah, we were all in the house when she passed and I was actually sleeping. My mother woke me up. So whatever. And I talked to my coach and my coach was like, if you don't go to your grandmother's funeral, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what? I'm like, coach, I don't need He's like, listen to me. So I went to my mother and my mother was like, go. She's like, go. We need good news. Go run. And I went up to Boston and I ran my butt off. I won. I ran as fast as I ever ran in my life at 32 years old. I'm like, all right, this is going to happen. I'm on one. Right. And, uh, I never forget, I crossed the line and like the places with the oohs and the ahs and I'm bawling, crying. Everybody's like, what is going on? Um, yeah, and I got back and literally everything just started to fall apart. So I found out my best friend killed himself. Wow. Um, you know, I ended up, you know, uh, that relationship ended up being dissolved. I lost my job. Um, I mean, there's so there's so many different things. I mean, I ultimately had no money in the bank. I spent all my money because I had no sponsor. Right. So I emptied an account, right? Close to 75 grand. I had nothing. I owed people money. All of a sudden people were like, oh, this, that, or whatever. This whole thing. And I'm still competing, whatever, but the stress was mounting. There was so much stuff going on. One of my close friends, him and I weren't talking, um, beefing over money. It was just so, like, it was just everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was, I just was, I, I, I was living a life that was literally crumbling from the inside out. And then I think the stress of it, literally one, one morning I was working out. And my whole leg, I had a grade three tear in my groin, went all the way through. And I just, I was devastated. And it just, it, it just kept getting progressively worse to the point where I got three degrees. I'm sleeping on the floor in a one bedroom apartment in the projects with my parents. Wow. That I couldn't lay in, in a bed until everyone went to bed and I pulled a, a mattress out from behind the thing and laid on the thing. And I never forget it. So my niece is like my everything. Mm -hmm. And I was and I'd made my bed and I'm laying there and she walked in and she saw me there. And I'm like, I, I you know, she knows me. I, I brought her to work with me. Mm -hmm. Right. Wall Street. Bring your kid to work day. She had always seen me as this thing. Right. This this beacon of hope from a family that sure. had a lot of struggle. Right. And we didn't even get into my childhood, but. When, when she saw me in that state, I'm like, all right, I have nothing else to mm -hmm. live for. And I got up one morning and I was going for a run. I was like, and at that point, I, my leg was still bothering me a little bit. But I'm like, let me just go try and run. And I was a shell of my former self. I was completely out of shape. Everything is, you know, everything had completely gone to nothing. I had nothing, right? I have, and, and I also have millions of dollars of clients' money. I couldn't even tell my clients that I had no job. Right. So the stress was incredible. And I'm, I'm running up the street and I stop and I see this truck coming. And I'm like, I'm gonna do it. Mm -hmm. I was like, this, it can't get any worse. And... <laughs> you don't you don't really if you were at that point for anybody listening and, and I'm sure there's plenty of people when you either have been to that point or you reach that point it's almost as if you have an outer body experience right because I'm like I'm dead already it's on the inside it's just the outside of me that's still living. Right. Right. That juxtaposition is where some people actually go to take the step. And the truck is getting closer and closer and closer. 
and I'm like inching closer to the street. And it was a point where I was like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And as it came, I froze and I just started to bawl crying and the truck went by and the wind, and I would have been gone. It was flying. It was early in the morning. So I'm sure this dude wanted to end his shift and go home. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, again, if you've been there, you gain and you lose something at the same time. And, and I just had this outer body experience. And again, I cried and I, I, I mean, I ran home probably faster than I ever ran in my life. And I just, I bawled and I'm like, I cannot believe I got to that point. And that whole day was just a blur, right? Wow. I just, I couldn't even believe it. No one knew. I couldn't tell anybody. And, and, and that's the other piece is you always hear about people committing suicide and dial this 1-800 number. And I wasn't mm-hmm. calling nobody. You can't call the people that you know, because some people are going to be fearful. Some people are going to be disappointed. Some right. people, right? And then you can't call someone you don't know because... They don't understand, you know, right. so I was in a position where everyone had known me to be this track star mm-hmm. and a successful Wall Street dude or whatever. Who, who am I supposed to call and say I want to kill myself? Right. At the time, I had friends calling and telling me all of their stuff. And I want to dissect this a, a little bit because I think you represent like this dark, this dark secret, in the, particularly in the black community for people who have gone to school and who are held up as a pillar. Yes. And as a success story, you alluded to, you know, your family a little bit and, and your childhood. And we can you know get into that later. But just I know what it is, right, to be the one that people look to and say they made it. Mm-hmm. They got out. And you start to put pressure on yourself too, like, I'm going to turn this ship around. Yep. Like, I'm going to be the one to pull my family out of despair and poverty and now that, that working class situation. And you you fight for that and you mm. make the make choices so that not only you can be good, but the people that you care about can be good. 100%. And when it doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go. And not only that, but when you know you really busted your hump, like you mm-hmm. did the work yeah. to try to see a level of success and reach the pinnacle only to be kicked back down and have to face those people 100%. that you were running for in your case literally and figuratively mm-hmm. running for the, yourself and them it can be debilitating and it can be beyond a blow to the ego because people could hear this and say you know well I can see how that could be hard you you work and you didn't make it to the Olympics or you know you started off you know on Wall Street and you know you had clients money under your watch mm-hmm. and then you owe people I can see how that could be difficult but it goes deeper than that oh It goes so much deeper when you come from a traumatic experiences in a certain community and you've made decisions that are supposed to set you on a path. It's the I call it the pivot generation, like where everything's supposed to pivot. And now generational wealth and that the story that you told about your niece is powerful for me because it's a real life representation of how you feel internally. Yeah. The people that have held me up are now looking at me down here on the floor. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that I, I feel that on visceral level and it's part of the reason why we started this podcast because I know so many people suffering in silence 100% and feeling like they have to you know hold themselves out to the world in a certain way and and they not only do they not feel like they can say hey I'm broken but they're not really being given the space to do that because everybody's dumping on them yeah yeah you know so there's so many different facets to what you have described here and thank you for for sharing no absolutely I think it's important for people to tell their story right and again, one of the things that I realized was, again, when my life fell apart, I was living my life from my resume. Sure. Now I live my life from my legacy. Right. So when I die. All I need is for somebody to walk into the funeral and say, my life is better because he breathed air. Mm-hmm. I'm good. And I feel like I'm there. But now, just in case I'm not, opportunities like this is why I, I think what you're doing is great. Why I'm grateful for you sharing your platform is because I'm confident somebody's going to hear my story. Right. And even if it's another day, all I needed was another day. Because mm-hmm. when your main goal is four years apart, all you got is the day. Right. I have to put one day together for four years right. to get to where I'm going. So if someone could just put together one day based on saying, you know what, that person made it or I, that story resonates with me, which is why it's so important, especially for for black and brown folks to tell our story. Right. Um, for first generation college students to tell their story. Right. For first generation high school graduates like myself to tell their story um, because there's someone on the other end of that. 
you never know who you're going to touch. Absolutely. Right? So absolutely. So let's talk about Wall Street a little bit. I want to talk about your current role. That's a whole other podcast. Wanna, yeah, it is. <laughs> you're coming back for a part two. I think that's already decided. But we'll touch on it here. Um, I want to talk, talk, talk about what you do today. Yeah. But then I want to dial it back to how in the middle of the Olympic dreams, you landed on Wall Street. As yeah. Well. So you're a managing partner, mm-hmm. correct, at Noble Bridge Wealth Partners. Mm-hmm. Right. So in a nutshell, what is it that you do today in your career? So in a nutshell... I, I, I explain it this way. I'm a financial consultant. Mm-hmm. So I, what folks would know as a financial advisor, I don't refer to myself as that. Okay. So I have clients. I help them manage their money. I'm an investment manager. So whether that's 401ks, whether it's reti- uh, college planning, retirement planning, financial planning, the whole deal. That's what I do. Okay. Um, and then we have a separate arm of our firm where I consult early stage startups and do cryptocurrency, crypto assets, which I like to mm-hmm. call it, um, advising as well. So that's the best way to a financial consultant, anything dealing with, you know, um, helping folks manage their financial lives. Got it. Okay. So how did you go from, you know, wanting to be in the Olympics, flunking out of Georgia Tech twice, mm-hmm. going to community college, you know, doing the Seton Hall thing. How did you get on Wall Street though? Because your degrees were not in finance. Not at all. I never took a business class. Wow. Never, never took a business class. I was in graduate school and I had a graduate professor. Um, shout out to Professor Duell. And he goes, you should work on Wall Street. And I'm like, I don't even know. <laughs> okay, first was, of all, no. Yeah, I'm like, I don't want to work those zombie hours. I've never taken a business class. I don't, he goes, you'd be great on Wall Street. And I'm like, all right, where do I start? And he kind of lead, led me down a direction of, you know, interviewing and doing the whole thing. And it was a really arduous process. Um, and then, yeah, I was interviewing and, and ended up at a firm called Financial Dynamics um, and, you know, doing investor relations. And I'm literally working there. So investor relations, for those who don't know, is just simply public relations with money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew nothing. When I say I knew nothing, I was 26 years old. I knew nothing about money. Nothing. I knew nothing about stocks. I, knew nothing about, I remember I had a, a roommate. Um, he, to this day, very successful. Um, shout out to Mike. He used to be in his room watching TV and the ticker symbols mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I'm like, man, can we go chase girls? <laughs> what are you doing? And he actually ended up becoming a treasurer at Disney and everything. Super successful. Wow. So we all sit and laugh about where I ended up now. It's terrible with money. They knew it. Um, but yeah, I got there and and it, it just started this progression of, again, I was blessed enough to have men pour into me mm-hmm. and be in a way to just say, hey, go this way. Right. So there I had a mentor who worked at Lehman Brothers and he goes, you'd be really good on the retail side. I'm like, well, what is the retail side? Mm-hmm. He's like working with individuals. And it was just good because I'm not the type to sit in a room and look at computer screens and all that. I was like, cool. I don't have, I'm not the cubicle guy anyway. So I ended up at a Wolf of Wall Street chop shop right here in mm-hmm. Penn Plaza, cold calling, 800, 900 dials a day. Wow. Calling people all over the country, pitching shares at Hasbro. Those skills would ultimately end up being extremely valuable. At the time, I, I it was terrible, but it's a godsend now because it was just, it was the type, it was like Navy SEAL training sure. for business. And uh, yeah, it went from there. And then I ended up um, going to another small firm that was doing some other type of stuff and trying to get my, you know, to the bulge bracket mm-hmm. firms, right? To the big wirehouses, Merrill, Morgan, whatever. Found my way into Morgan Stanley, convinced the branch manager there that, yeah, I can do this job and train for the Olympics. He was like, <laughs> it sounds, sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but let's try it. And that was when, you know, in 2012, he had to fire me, but it was, it was again, just God's coverage. He brought me in. He, he was like, I'm firing you, but I'm also going to connect you with your next job. He wrote it. He goes, call this number when you leave here. So I'm like limping out again. I got a tall groin. Oh my gosh. Call. And the gentleman was like, yeah, come in interview. And I went to interview with him and he goes, I want to hire you. But he goes, not in this office. He goes, you know, there's an office in Edison, which was, I lived in Edison. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, go interview there. All right. I go interview. I cried through the whole interview. Again, walking in, limping. Wait a minute. Torn growing. I lit- when I tell you, literally cried through the whole you interview. broke down in the, the interview. The whole interview. Cried. And the branch manager goes, I heard enough. I'm like, now mind you, I needed the job. Right. He's like, I heard enough. We'll be in touch. And I'm like, oh my God, I blew it. And, uh, the sequence of events from there. It's funny. I was just telling the story before I got here. 
it's a long thing, but if I told you the whole thing, you you'd be like, you're lying. But long story short, I don't I don't hear anything mm-hmm. at the time. All of my stuff is in my car. I'm staying with the young lady in Brooklyn. My parents are in Jersey, so I'm going back and forth. Being a nomad. Being a nomad, I have no permanent address, anything. I'm leaving there to go back to Jersey because my grandmother now is very ill. Mm -hmm. So I'm going back. I'm going back for that reason also because I'm supposed to interview now because they reached out to me. <laughs> and again, this would tell us whole story is too long. So I'm actually driving Manhattan. I actually picked her up from work and we're driving Manhattan. I get a call and they're like, oh, uh, Tyrone. I'm like, yeah. They're like, this is such and such from Merrill Lynch. Are you still interested in the wow. job? It was months. I hadn't heard anything. Turns out the woman who had booked my, was supposed to book my interview got fired. That was the only contact that I had. So that was the first thing I pull over immediately. I was like, yes. She's like, okay, well, you got to come to interview, whatever, two days, three days, whatever. So we all in the car, we celebrating or whatever. Go back to her place. I leave early that morning because I got to get back to Jersey Mm -hmm. now, shower, shower. I need my stuff. Coming out of the Holland Tunnel, I hit a pothole. (laughs) Now, at this time, again, one of the first things I did when I started making money, I bought a coupe, two-door coupe. Of course you the did. The man, right? You had to stunt. Yeah. Of course. Low profile tires, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Boom, hit the pothole, done. I have no money. I have nothing. No triple I, I limp. You know that if you come out of the Holland Tunnel, you know that Dunkin' Donuts yep. there? <laughs> Sat in that Dunkin' Donuts. I called my boy. Literally, like, Danny's my ride or die. I said, look, man, I got no money. I got to get to this interview today. They just called. I've been waiting for months. He's like, all right, I'm going to come. And God bless his soul. He sat with me because there's really nothing he could do. I, like, I couldn't leave my car. Sure. I couldn't really get towed. I didn't have, you know, AA or BB or CC, none of that stuff. <laughs> Nobody to come get me. So he sat there with me as long as we could. So I'm like, all right, well, we look in the clouds. So it's about the pour. Oh, gosh. So he's like, he's like, dude, I got to go. I had to get to work. So he leaves me there. I'm sitting in the cars, pouring, 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 pouring. Phone's about to die. So I finally call a place. I'm like, I'm right down the road here in Jersey City. They come and get me. I call. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to make it today. Can I, you know. So after all of that, you had to call them and tell them that you're not going to make it. I couldn't. I couldn't make it. So she's like, yeah, that's fine. You know, whatever. We could reschedule. And I'm like, all right, fine. Now I got to find a way to get my car back. I literally have no money. They told me to the place, which is literally five minutes away. Guys like, now mind you, again, German car, they need a special guy to of work course. on it. He was off. They had to call him to come in. I'm like, what is this gonna cost? So I'm sitting in the I'm sitting in the room. I'm like, I've run out of people to call and ask for money. What do I do? I'm like, I'm like so whatever it was, it was a time of year where football was on. So literally something came on about the Giants. And I had said something. The guy was like, Oh, you a Giants fan? I was like, Yeah. He goes, we got you, man. I'm like, you got what? He was like, we're going to take care of it. I'm like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, they fixed my car for free. Get out of here. So wait, though, let's back up. When you called about the tow, they're like, well, we're going to charge you to tow you? Yeah, or? I guess they were going to bundle it all together, right? So you did this knowing that you had no money. I had no money. I was figuring I'd get there and then I'd call somebody and be like, can you put some money in my account? Okay. I didn't know, but I just needed to get out of that parking lot because they were also stressing me. You got to get this car out of car. here. And I'm like, do you see the tire and the rim? So that was that. And and I, they fixed it. I got home, and again, I, I, I had a, I had finally had the interview, and I met with the gentleman there, and um, he was like, "I'm not sold." I'm Wait, like, after all of that, he said, "I'm that, not yeah. sold." He goes, "I'm not sold." He goes. So you got to take like a personality assessment thing. I failed that. He was like, your personality doesn't mix. And Wait, I'm like, like um, billions? Like the, head, yeah. like the therapist lady? Absolutely, yeah. He's like, you failed that. I'm like, he goes, you know, we usually get, you know, they hit they hit me with the, we usually get Ivy League candidates sure. and it's that whatever. And you don't come from money. And uh, I'm like, all I could tell you is this. This is what I told him. I looked him straight in the face. I said, if you hire me, I will outwork everybody you hired yesterday and tomorrow. And that's all I can tell you. And 
he's like, all right, we'll need to think about it. And he called and I started and the rest is history. I got there and they were like, who is this with his hair on fire when he walks in here every morning? And that was kind of it. And I got there and again, was just telling the story as well. I used to be the first one in, last one out. Mm -hmm. And my mentor now, who is, he's like a deity at Merrill Lynch. He walked by my cube one day and he goes, come to my office. I'm like, what? Okay. He goes, I've been here almost 30 years. I've never seen anybody with that combination of work ethic and talent, but you don't know how to run a business. You don't know how to be an advisor. I'm going to teach you. And here I am. Wow. There are a couple of things I want to touch on Mm -hmm. from the story that you told about your foray into Wall Street and working in finance. And you brought up something I was actually going to raise if you didn't. And that is being someone who's not moneyed coming into that space and who didn't come from certain schools. Yeah. So I went to Penn undergrad Mm -hmm. um, and I was like the person that didn't come from money at Penn. And it even though I had been in schools before where I was like the odd man out, it was like that was the first time I saw that like people are being groomed 100%. to walk into prime opportunities, take advantage of their familial networks, take advantage of their friends, and build a book of business and whatever they're doing. So when you don't have that and you don't have that exposure and those connections, you're at a disadvantage in a couple of different ways. You're starting from ground zero on all fronts, but also there's either and I was going to say an implicit bias, but he had an explicit bias. He told you, told you don't, you don't come from money. So did you ever, was your confidence ever shaken going into this field? Knowing you didn't have the finance, economics, stats degree, knowing you didn't come from the right family, you know, knowing you might not have had the personality on the surface. Was your confidence ever shaken in that? I guess as I think about it, I, I, I don't remember any time where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But the one thing I did have was that experience of being in that boiler room. And I'm like, I can outwork anybody. Like sure. I can work a phone. I can pitch. So I don't know money, but I can get the money. Mm-hmm. Right. And I literally whatever how and I always tell people this, whatever you think hard is or whatever Wall Street thinks hard is, it's not training for the Olympics. Nothing in my life will ever be that hard. Right. Will require that commitment, dedication, time, effort, perseverance. So I was like, okay, I got to get here at five. I got to work until nine. I got to work on the weekend. So that attitude kind of masks all of my deficiencies. Right. Like Eric Thomas, Eric Thomas says, right. Your daddy may own a company. You may come from privilege, Mm -hmm. but you'll never outwork me. You will never outwork me. And I used to listen to that, right? Um, to him repeatedly. And I remember when I was going through it, I actually went to see him in, uh, in New York city. He was here and it was funny. The two tickets that I bought was the last amount of money I had on the credit card. Wow. And I maxed him out. I maxed it out to go see him. And, uh, it's funny if I ever get to see him again, I'm gonna tell him I haven't listened to his stuff since. Cause I don't need it. Wow. And I think he'll take that as the best, you know, the biggest compliment, but I used to listen to that and I'm like, you know what? That's exactly right. So I kind of took that attitude with me. So I never really thought about it because to this day, even when I'm dealing, I'm mentoring companies or I'm mentoring individuals, which I do a lot of is give me a kid who grew up like I grew up. Right. As opposed to the kid who grew up in the best scenario in the kitchen, right? The refrigerator's full, right? Mm -hmm. Lions hunt best when they're hungry. Absolutely. Right. So give me that hunger and groom that hunger and watch what happens right now. I wasn't smart enough to go to pen still now. But those that come from that environment, there's a reason, right? You had to have a little bit of dog in you to get out of there. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, especially being a woman of color. But so that's even more of an issue. And I have a friend, we always talk about this is that what we have to do now as a community is those who are black folk are starting to push into our abundance because right. we have folks like yourself and myself who are first generation college students and degrees and lawyers and doctors or whatever. We have to start fostering our best best of the best, right? And ascend them into these rooms, into these meetings, into these arenas where they can impact change. And then we start to have our own funnel down, right? Right. So that's kind of how I looked at it. I was just like, you know what? I can take my experiences, right? I can take coming home and the lights being off or there's no gas, right? Or having to go to the bathroom in bags and walk it out because there's no running water Wow. or cars being repossessed or being evicted still to this day as I sit here having stuff in storage and being too shook to go back right to this day. So the experience of a child banging on the door and you're the only one home and the guy's telling you, get everything you can in the house and get out. Wow. All I got to do is recall that. Wow. Good luck. 
if you competing against me, you have no shot. I don't care where you went to school. <laughs> because when it started, again, where your pain, where, where your pleasure can meet other people's pain is where you win. So when I start to see that you're tired, mm-hmm. the phone is getting heavy, or you don't want to go, that's when I'm like, all right, now we're digging in. So all of those experiences I call on often. Well, to sit and start, you know, at the bottom rung, and if, if the listeners haven't watched Wolf of Wall Street, it is an accurate representation. 100%. <laughs> Shop shop 100%. I remember when I first saw uh, that movie, I didn't have a lot of exposure at that point to Wall Street. And I'm like, this has got to be trumped up, right? Same thing with uh, The Pursuit of Happiness. Chris Gardner right. on the phone and to save time, he's not putting the receiver down. Got to do it. the button, right? Got to do I'm it. I'm like, okay. You know, some of it you think is cinematic effect until I talk to people like it's yourself real. who worked in that environment. They're like, no, no. Like 800 calls a day when you break that down over a 12 hour, that's a ridiculous number yeah. of calls. Calls, but it teaches you persistence and grit. And for you, I think it was just building on persistence, yeah. right? And getting knocked down and getting back up. Something yeah. that you already you told were. no all day. Exactly. <laughs> told no. Get told no for a living. Still all do. day. So, and then getting to a point where you can call on going to the bathroom in bags, eviction, yeah. can yeah. call on three times wanting to go to the Olympics yep. and it not working out the way you thought. You can call on going to Georgia Tech once, getting kicked out, giving a second chance, right. blowing it, getting kicked out again. You can call on all those experiences and say, and I always look back too, and I've brought it up on here. I look back to my ancestors as well. Yeah. Like they were still standing, you know, yeah. after all of that. And I'm not talking about ancestors. We don't know. I'm just saying grandparents, my parents, right. I can beat this. I'm, yeah. I'm giving, I'm being given an opportunity that is much greater than, than what they received. And if I can survive all that, they could survive what they went through. Right. Now I've got these tools that are saying, if I just dig in deep and go deep and I really push and go hard yeah that i'm gonna reap a, a reward or at some point that's what keeps me going yeah everything i just described to you about my life was privileged mm-hmm. compared to if you had my parents on right? right my father held a job 40 years still can't really read and write well right wow. can you imagine a job 40 years you can't read and write my father actually had to call my mother to help him with an application as he's filling it out wow so she's helping him over the phone right they used to you know when they had me and my sister and they were young right they used to drink warm water before they went to bed they gave us what they had right and we laugh about it now mm-hmm. but you know my mom, my mother was like when we got married I had a ham in the oven she was, she was like we got married in the apartment I'm telling them hurry up I got food <laughs> right. So we did, you know, we did everything in that little apartment. Right. Everything. Everything was there. My birthday, first birthday party, everything. So I don't want to make it seem. Listen, there's people who've had it worse. And I understand that everything that I was able to describe was privileged mm-hmm. compared to what my parents went through. My mother being pregnant with my sister at 16, having her at 17, having to do all the things that she did and her and my father experienced. I probably couldn't have gone through that. Right. right? And, and I couldn't imagine living as hard as life is right now. And seeing all the things that I have to do, I couldn't imagine not being very well, you know, schooled. Right. My, my father really, and as far as I know, he didn't finish middle school. So wow. it's it's an amazing thing what he's done. And I realized where I, and now I do. I, I realize that those experiences now I take from them. So I'm like, you know what? In, in a funny way, that's my privilege. Mm-hmm. Right. They did what they could. And, and I don't want to make it seem like my parents were losers. They did everything they could, but there was just a lot that was out of their control. But ultimately what they provided was a privilege of grit, of grind, Absolutely. of hustle, desire, of commitment. So that's not something I have to work for. It's in my DNA. It's in my blood. Absolutely. So you, it's, it's never something I had to work for. You know what I'm saying? So when you combine all of those things and then you put someone around opulence, around sumptuous surroundings, and you're like, oh, I can have this. Right. Right. It changes the game. Absolutely. Right? So speaking of those surroundings, you know, I've, I've had um, my entree into Wall Street and I've been to Wall Street Friends events that I know how flashy it is and all that other stuff. Did you ever feel the need to assimilate, right, to to maintain an image and sort of distance yourself maybe maybe from your upbringing and all of that? Absolutely. Because it's it's they it's almost a rite of passage, mm-hmm. right? It, it's just like being in a gang, or it's just like being a part of a, a, in a in a sorority, right, or a fraternity. You you know, buy a nice watch. What they tell you, right. they don't tell you to buy a nice watch because you got the money. They tell you to buy a nice nice watch because it's going to put you in the debt. And you got to work yourself out of you wow. know, right, to get 
nice suits. So your suits are clearly off the rack, brother. <laughs> Go get a suit made, right? Find you in a telly. And then you don't get a suit made. The guys come to the office and they fit you there. And then you know, I'm like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And then the guy comes in and then he's shining everybody's shoes. And uh, it was a whole thing. So I was like, oh, I got to get my shoes shined too. Right. right. And my mentor used to do it. Give me your shoes. Don't do me. It's like, just give me your shoes. Guy will come and shine shoes. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing, right? Your shoes, your belt, everything had to. So yeah, you feel that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had already had a gaudy type of personality, <laughs> I mean, anyway, as you know. So you were like, like 17 on Georgia Tech. Yeah. Campus, so like Cuban links, like right, so yeah, you, you, you right. probably fit right in. So right. once you start to get that type of money. And bonus checks and all that stuff, it's easy to go dumb. Just be like, all right, what are we doing? But it's, it, I think I, I felt, I felt like I did a good job of it because I didn't, I really started to get to the point now where I really was like, okay, I'll spend $4,000 on a suit. Now, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that then, but now I feel like I'll do that because I could do it. That's what I want right. to do. And it's not to fit in. It's just because I've developed a passion for those things, right? Mm-hmm. I don't really have any crazy vices and I love suits. So mm-hmm. that's my thing. So I, I just kind of grown into that, but you do feel the pressure and it's, and it's, it will, it, you know, especially if you're into drugs and alcohol, which I wasn't because that's in an, an, an abundance. abundance. But you do from all sides to 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 do a lot of things that may be out of your character. It's a beast. So it's a beast. What do you think was your moment where you like leveled out where you were like, I could have nice things, but I don't have to go like buy the, the drop top coupe the minute I get a bonus check? It was very recently. Really? Uh, yeah, very recent. I, I would probably say four or five years ago mm-hmm. because you got to understand I, it all went away right. and then it all came back. So now this time around, I'm like, ah, right. <laughs> I get it. Right. You know, um, and it, it's funny, all of these things that I'm doing now from investing and this, that, whatever, I, you know, my 401k that I had, I cashed that out. Mm-hmm. I ain't know nothing about no tax consequences or whatever. I'm like, I'm going to cash it out. Didn't Let's go to the strip club. Whatever. I did all types. I did every stupid thing you could do with money I've done. So now I realize it was like, okay, it's a situation where now I know better. I've made every foolish mistake you can make. I'm older, I'm wiser, but now I'm the type of individual internally that can make the right decisions to do that once right. and then do right by everything else I need to do right by. So it's very recent, very recent. Hey, listen, I mean, I, I, I always say, I personally feel like you start to come into your own post 35. 100%. Like, you know, people say, oh, 20 is dumb, you know, making bad decisions. But I think, especially when you don't have a leg up and someone coaching you on financial management or, you know, how to create generational wealth and all those things, mm-hmm. it takes a little bit longer. Yeah. Right? And then when you've got trauma to work through and all that stuff. So I, I'm a firm believer that post 35 is when yeah. we really start to it starts find to come together. our rhythm. And if you, if you fall on your face enough, some people still <laughs> out there just yeah. wilding out. Yep. But if you, if you've fallen down enough, it's when you start to find your rhythm and come into your own and mm-hmm. have a level of self-awareness that just wasn't there. And I mean, I'm also a believer that when you, come from lack when you're making money it's something about that lack that's always chasing you 100 and it's i don't even know really how to articulate it but it's like and that's why you see so many people who get a windfall and don't for a second think let me do something with this so that it doesn't go away immediately let me make make it work for me it's like you get it you stunt it's gone you're back to the same Mm -hmm. place it's a cycle and it's often a generational cycle um that i'm committed to breaking right right? which is why you have to come back because we're not even going to get into all the things I wanted to talk about in yeah. terms of advising, especially our community on the wealth yeah, disparity and, absolutely. and how to that's start a, to turn that around. That's an episode on us. Yes, but, but let's touch on it a little bit. What's your client base look like today? So my clients are what I like to call in the accumulation phase of life. Okay. They are accumulating family members. They are accumulating debt. They are accumulating assets. Um, so they're young. They're successful. They're very liquid. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't necessarily have a tremendous net worth. They're coming into their own. So they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're, you know, they work at startups. It it runs the gamut. Okay. Um, Or just regular corporate jobs, but doing well for themselves. Um, And that's really it. I have a few older clients that follow me from Merrill. Um, that one is my chiropractor. I've been going to him forever. So, you know, we're really, we're really close. Shout out Dr. Davis. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's, and that's really it. 
So I, I kind of I, I kind of help them with the initial phases of setting a financial plan and getting right and then then go out, make your money, do what you need to do. Got it. Um, but the initial phases of, OK, setting up a 529 if you have kids, getting your 401k allocated, understanding all of your work benefits, which is huge. I tell people all the time, you don't maximize your work benefits. Mm-hmm. It's a huge investment. And then also helping them understand the difference between taxable and, and tax deferred, right, which is your 401k or IRA and your taxable accounts, which is just a brokerage account, a stock account, something like that. And that's really it. So that that's that's in a nutshell. Got it. So I know I I talk to a lot of 26ers who have a lot of shame around poor financial decisions or sometimes this thing that wasn't even, you know, things that were not even in their control. For example, getting an advanced degree and just taking those loans without thinking about, you know, federal loan that's 7.25% that you're going to have on six figures, which is, you know, higher than people's mortgage rates, right? You bought a house. Yeah, for 200, for a quarter of a million dollars. So, you know, I, I say, I hear people say all the time, you know, my friends and people that I care about, like, I want to talk to a financial advisor, but I have nothing to invest. You know, I'm making good money, but I got these loans. I'm, I'm trying to right wrongs that I made that's you know, earlier in my life. An and that's the point I, I wanted you to make. That, yep. that is the time that to That is call. the time to talk to an advisor. And Absolutely. get over the shame of... Get over the shame. Right. And that's one of the things that I, I press upon people all the time, and which is also why I wanted to open my own firm mm-hmm. and have latitude over that because there were so many people I had to quote unquote turn away or felt like they couldn't work for me, right. work with me for whatever reason. But I like to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And again, going back, I always think about imagine if my mom or my dad came across somebody like myself, even though they don't take my financial advice now. They don't? No. They don't, Still? To, they don't listen to me and said, hey, do this, do this, do this. Right. It'll help you last another three months. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'll keep the lights on this month, you know. Um, so that's kind of it. You don't, you don't need to have a million dollars. You can have debt, you can have whatever, but talk to an advisor, get set up now. They'll help you get over the hump. So now when the money comes or the abundance comes, one, you know how to handle it. Two, you know how to get it to work for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And three, you then have a financial professional that you can call for anything. Right. Anything. Right. Um, so and I always the test is always ask people because I go speak to kids a lot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I see so many black and brown boys who don't know what I do as an option. They True. don't know what a financial advisor is. They don't know what a hedge fund manager is. They don't know what any of that is. That was me. I didn't know that. Right. So it's important that people understand, hey, go look around. How many financial advisors do you know? How many people in financial services do you know? And our communities, people don't know too many. They don't. So um, that's the thing that people need to get over. And again, if anyone needs help or wants to talk, I'm more and willing to help folks. I always tell people the first one is on me. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll answer questions or whatever. And when when it starts to get expensive, I'll let you know. <laughs> you have to pay me. Yeah. But so we're going to make sure we drop at the end of the interview when people can where they can find you. Yeah. Um, but before we get there, mm-hmm. see, this is what I love because discipline carries over whether you're an athlete or oh, yeah. business or what have you. If you have a certain level of discipline um, and you're able to live a regimented life, I think that will serve you well. <laughs> Anywhere. So I'm interested to know what your day looks like now. Day looks like now. Up at 4 a.m. I knew it was super early. Um, up at 4 a.m. Um, at the track to train at 4.45. So you're still training? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still competing too. So um, we'll train till about, I have a training group, so we'll train till about 5.45. Um, come home, um, I'll have a, a cup of coffee, scan Twitter, see what's going on. Probably scan, well, first thing I do is scan Twitter in the morning, see what's mm-hmm. going on, overseas market, stuff like that. Um, I always tell people between the hours of four and six, Twitter will make you the smartest person in the world. Um, so I do that religiously. So I'll go home, I sit, monitor Twitter, um, go through, you know, what I need to do for a day, for the day. Usually my, my clients know I'm an early bird, mm-hmm. so they'll reach out with text or whatever. Cause I have, a, I have a probably most of my calls before 10 o'clock. Okay. Um, and like today, so I, I had a bunch of calls that I had to take and I knew I was, I set up some meetings in the city today. Um, and that's really, and that's really it. And I take meetings or calls all day. So I'm literally, my day is 
not what people think in terms of looking at the there's days where like today I don't know where the, where the market closed mm-hmm. it's not important um so it's it's constant dialogue with clients constant meetings it's all of that stuff um and we have an office in Montclair but I work out of home most days mm-hmm. mostly because again I'm, I'm usually going to meet people or events or this that or whatever um and that's really it and then probably go till about I'll work until about 7 45 mm-hmm. and then I try and take my evening walk. I walk every night for 30 minutes just to kind of declutter my mind and go through everything. Um, yeah. And then come back in the house, um, warm water, uh, apple cider vinegar before bed and try and be knocked out by 930. By 930. I knew it had yeah. to be early too. Bedtime. <laughs> you're, you're getting up. Before. Yeah. Try and be knocked out by 930. Unless like obviously tonight. That won't happen. Most nights, it, it, if I'm in the city, it doesn't happen. Right. But people know if you don't reach me by nine o'clock, it's going to happen. Wrap. It's going to happen at four or five tomorrow <laughs> when you sleep. <laughs> so you are maximizing your days. 100%. Sure. So I'm going to ask you this question because I already warned you that we do it in every interview. And you gave so many inspirational stories already. I'm interested to see what you pull out of your bag. But tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. So... <laughs> There's so many. Um, I was, oh. So when I found out that my grandmother passed, um, that day, right, as, as I mentioned, it was days before I had to literally, oh my God, I had to prepare um, for now, looking back at it, which was literally the end of my dream. Wow. And it's funny because I'm, my mother's holding her. And so this bracelet says, I believe I gave this to everybody that I knew in 2012. And I take the bracelet off of her and I put it on. And... Again, so a couple of days later, I'm standing on the line and I'm like, it represented so much. I'm, I'm, I'm about to race. And again, I, I definitely I had to be extraordinary because the, the guys that I was competing against were all world. And I felt so human mm-hmm. and I felt so normal and I was grieving and. Uh, I somehow pulled it together, but I say, I say that to say. Looking back at it is I'm a, I'm a broken man mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to live the rest of my life knowing that the one thing I worked hardest at would never happen. So every day is an ordinary day. So I have to be extraordinary every day because I have to live the rest of my life as a failure. So I have to find ways to be extraordinary every day because I always feel ordinary. Because I failed at the one thing I felt I was put here to do. That's all I got. That's powerful. I'm sorry. It's, I'm having a light skin moment. I'm sorry. No, you know what? <laughs> You're having a vulnerable moment. <laughs> You're having a vulnerable moment, which I respect so much because, especially for you being a black man, right? Because we live in a society where it's like, man up, you know, and we're not allowed and we're not given the space to talk about the pain that we feel over disappointment and loss and dreams. So I respect you so much for revealing your hurt over that and being willing to be so open about something you're still carrying. Yeah, right? 100%. It's easy to be like, that was my dream. It didn't quite work out, but look at me now, yeah. right? I'm managing partner of a, a financial firm. I'm doing my thing. I got my, my $4,000 suits. Like, I can have any thing that I want. It's easy to fall into that. Yeah. It takes bigger man, and I'm not going to say what I really want to say. It takes <laughs> a bigger man to say, I'm still broken. 100%. Because I didn't attain what, what I felt was my God-given ordained destiny. Yep. I, uh, I'll end it by saying this. 
I pray. I pray. Not only for myself, because I know I'm not the only one. That somehow I'm made whole. And whoever is listening to this, you may have wanted to be an actress, an artist, whatever. And it didn't happen. You got to persevere. You got to stay in it. I, I, I don't know why God would give someone a talent and a dream and not have them manifest it. It's terrible pain, mm-hmm. but what you see for yourself is not what he has for you. With that said, me telling this story, me mentoring the young men that I mentor, the places that I go, the money that I give, the time that I spend, but more importantly, telling this story. I have these broad shoulders for a reason. To bear this, to bear this cross. And again, the last prayer is that somebody that is listening to this, all I can tell you is hold on. Just hold on. It gets better. It's never right. You can't have anything you want. You can't have anything you want. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. Can't have any and you can't have everything. But what you can have is a resolve to get up every day and pray that God leads you to your destiny. That's it. And brother, I don't believe in cliches and trite words. You're living under a new normal, right? You know, I think. Things are never going to go back to what you believed could happen when you were 32 or 28. You've got to find your path with the cross that you're bearing and with the pain that you feel. I'm a person that believes you got to face that reality. And something I learned in therapy, right? We can't just sweep it under the rug and say, well, I'm, I'm on a new chapter now. But I believe wholeheartedly, and I'm not just saying this, that the impact that you're going to have on a lot of people. You might have had a dream about, you know, who you who you thought you were going to be and what your image was going to be and what, what a little brown or black boy was going to see in the projects, what you accomplished on the track. I firmly believe that what you're going to accomplish and how you're going to impact our nation and beyond is going to supersede that. I appreciate that. And it comes at a cost. I'm, I'm not saying that it doesn't, and I'm not... I don't want to minimize what you're feeling and what you're going to have to continue to feel and the sting that's going to be there. But I firmly believe, I believe wholeheartedly that you are on to something and your message, your roots run deep. I can see that. Your message is going to impact people. I appreciate that. In a way that's going to, it's going to go down in the annals. Thank you for the platform. Like I said, this is, this is a piece of it. I I really was looking forward to it and it's cathartic. This is, this is my therapy. So I, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, it means a lot to me. So. And here's what we do. I had all these plans to talk about cryptocurrency and all this <laughs> other stuff. But sometimes when you roll organically, other things happen. And yeah. what is meant to happen is going to happen. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to end it here. Yeah. And then we'll do another episode on everything, all the educational pieces as it relates to financial literacy and Bitcoin and Ether and all that other stuff. Oh, you said Ether and not Ethereum. Yes. <laughs> yes. So tell tell the people where they can find you online. Um, so, yeah, to to get that crypto message um, and, and everything in general, uh, follow me on Twitter. Um, TR401. Um, I have a very much different uh, persona there than I do on Instagram, which is Tyrun, T-Y-R-U-N, 401. Um, I'm a voracious reader, so you'll see a lot of the books and stuff that I read there. And then I also post some content on LinkedIn as well. I'm active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm working on getting a YouTube page and some things now, but those are probably the three platforms where you'll get um, a good good deal of content from me and what I'm what I'm all about until uh, we meet again. Okay, and your your company's website? Um, yeah, Noble Bridge uh, Wealth Partners. Um, so the the actual website. Um, is noblebridgewealthmanagement.com. Uh, but um, Noble Bridge Wealth Partners, if you put that in LinkedIn, everything comes up there. And on my page has the LinkedIn, the website, 
everything. My site is public. So um, my Twitter, the, the all of the um, business information, my cell phone, everything, everything is there. If you want to reach out, you have questions. Um, I encourage everyone to reach out. If I can help at all, please let me know. Um, yeah. That's I appreciate all you. I appreciate you. This was awesome. This Much was respect. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. To the listeners, if you are out there and dealing with not a dream deferred, but a dream denied and trying to find a new vision for your life, persevere. I hope you took something away from this episode, which was really important for me. Really, really important. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening you for to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.